Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. Welcome back, Forest Overstory listeners. I hope you all are enjoying your summer and maybe doing something fun while listening to this. Uh, we're back with another great episode in store. As usual, I am your host, Patrick Schultz, an extension forester with Washington State University. And I am accompanied by my co-host and colleague, Kevin Zobrist, another extension forester. Kevin, how you doing? I'm doing well, Patrick. We've got an exciting topic to cover, one that's been on a lot of people's minds. So I'm excited to, to dig in with our guests this morning. I agree. This is something that we hear a lot of chatter about. Uh, in our episode today, we are going to be talking about how we can improve climate resilience of forests during tree planting and reforestation. Uh, so we'll dig into things like assisted migration. This is some terms that you may have heard before. We'll understand what that means versus things like population migration and some really interesting research that's happening around this right now. Uh, and to that end, we have a very special guest who's doing some of that much needed research, uh, Jeff DeBell. Jeff, how are you doing? Good. Thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me. We're thrilled to have you on. This is uh, your person that we've wanted to have in the podcast for a little while. And when I heard about your recent research project, uh, I knew it was a really great time. Uh, so before we dig into that, uh, why don't we start, like we usually start getting to know you a little better. Um, can you tell us a little more about your position? Um, you know, you work for the Washington Department of Natural Resources. What do you do there? Yeah, that's right. I manage the genetics program, the forest genetics program. And so that includes sort of two parts. Uh, one part would be uh, testing different seed sources across the landscape, different environments, to make sure that we understand how those seed sources uh, will perform. And then the other part is the actual seed production. So once we've tested a lot of different trees, we'll take those trees uh, and graft them into seed orchards. And, and so if you haven't seen a seed orchard, you know, picture an apple orchard, right? Trees in rows and, and managed so you can pick them easily, widely spaced, so they produce well. And then we use, we use those seed orchards to, uh, to produce our cones and get seed, which then is sent to our nursery to grow seedlings. Adding to that, uh, as we take on the issue of climate change, uh, we're thinking more broadly about what seed sources we should be interested in, as well as maybe even what species we should be interested in, and starting to uh, collaborate even more than we have in the past with people like the, the Forest Service or other large landowners, um, because there's, there's a real uh, need to increase capacity, both for seedlings and seed, you know, kind of across the West. So in the last couple of years, uh, I've started to get involved in, in broader efforts um, beyond just what's what DNR has had traditionally. Great. Yeah. And, and so to kind of like set the stage, you know, one of the, the reasons we're doing this, um, well, maybe to set the stage, we should define something. Can you tell me what a seed zone is? 
Sure, a seed zone traditionally is just the area where you would both collect the seed and plant the seed back. And and this comes this goes back to uh, early research, early part of the 20th century, where foresters planted a lot of different seed sources all together in on a site, and there were m more than one, you know, multiple sites across very different environments. And over time, the conclusion was that local seed is best. You know, this it's adapted. It's been the, those trees have been there. Those populations have been there a long time, and so they can handle the local, you know, weather conditions and and all that sort of thing. So you have to have a way to define what local means. And so in the 1960s in our state, a group of geneticists and seed producers all got together and came up with a system of seed zones. And and what they did was divided the state into you know, these zones, these polygons, uh, and then, and, and made a map. And then within each polygon, seed was to be kept separate by elevation, you know, and then not because elevation itself is so important, because, but because uh, things like temperature and precipitation are highly correlated with elevation. And so this was a, a universal system so that if you were collecting seed, selling, you know, cones, buying cones, um, you had a common language, so everybody understood where where things came from. And then over time, that the specifics have been refined, but the the concept has uh, has stayed the same. Right. Yeah. So I, I some of us may have seen the uh, seed zone map for Western Washington, and it differs for different species. Doug Fur has a particularly uh, complex seed zone map, um, and the long traditional way of doing this is planting trees from within your seed zone and never going outside of that. Um, but all of that is based on this assumption that, you know, the climate in that area is relatively static, it's going to stay the same. And obviously, we know now that that's not really the case, the climate is changing rapidly, um, relatively rapidly to what it's done in the past. And so that means that this assumption uh, is not necessarily valid anymore. So we're looking at things like seed zone transfer. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And and I'm glad you, you said it in that way, because really the purpose of seed zones was to maintain a match between the, you know, the genetic makeup of the trees and the environment where you were planting them. And And so the way we did that was keeping things local. You know, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, if for any listeners who are gardeners, you know, the saying, you know, right plant, right place, uh, that same concept is really what seed zones were about. But as you said, um, climate change is sort of uh, undermining one of the assumptions, and that is that, that the local trees are adapted to that climate because, you know, now they're going to be ad adapted to a climate that is, you know, not going to be there in, in the future. Um, a sort of a different climate will be in that in that seed zone if you look out 20 or 40 years. Yeah, and you know, when we talk about this in this conversation, a lot of terms come to mind. So maybe we can help, you know, have you help us to define some of those a little further. Um, there's this larger practice that we call assisted migration 
that a lot of people are talking about. And, and a lot of times when people talk about that, they talk about shifting whole species, you know, bringing redwoods up here and incense cedar and things like that. Um, but then there's other forms as well, which is closed a little closer to what we're talking about, transference seed zones. So could you define assisted migration versus species migration versus popular mi population migration? Sure. Yeah. I guess you can think of assisted migration as being a large umbrella term that that covers anything from, you know, moving seed from moving a, a single species from one seed zone to the next, all the way from moving a species to an entirely different continent where it could never get on its own. And, and for that reason, I, I I don't love that we've adopted the, that terminology because uh People always start by saying assisted migration and then go into an explanation of the different parts. And almost always in the conversations I'm in, what we're really talking about is seed source selection. And, and that is not really new. Um, as we've talked about, we recognized fairly early on that local seed uh, performed best. You know, this is obviously before climate change. But even with that, people have. Um, not always been able to follow those rules exactly like it's it's pretty common actually for uh say our nursery to get a call from a, a small forest landowner and need some seedlings were sold out of the uh seed zone that that they want that where their land is but we have some seedlings in another seed zone and so and, and this happens internally within dnr as well and so then what we do is we look you know where's the planting site we look in our records, where's the actual seed lot from, and then just kind of make a a, a judgment about whether that's um, low risk, you know, whether that's a relatively safe transfer. Uh, because there's nothing, there's nothing magic about where those lines are. The, the concept is you just don't want to move seed too far, right? So as we get into the assisted migration uh, with the seed source in particular, we're just talking about reaching farther, but keeping the same objective in place, you know, matching the seed source to the environment. Now, we may get into uh, other kinds of assisted migration at some point, and those would be so that the, the one we just talked about was really just moving seed sources or populations further north or wherever uh, within their existing range, you know, so you're not... You're not planting a species that's not already there. It's just that you're not planting the seed source that's on site. You're planting a seed source from the same species uh, that's maybe from an environment that we think will be a better match for the future. But then another thing, the, the next kind of assisted migration uh, would be that, that, that population, or I'm, excuse me, the, the range migration. And so this might be a, a situation, like if you think about, I'll give an example, noble fir. So noble fir, uh, really the range of noble fir stops at about Highway 2, Stevens Pass in Washington. But foresters have planted it north of there, both in northern Washington and British Columbia. It, it does fine up there in all the examples that I know about. And it's thought that it just hasn't moved uh as far north as it's adapted because of, you know, from the last glaciation. But, but that is increasing the range of noble fir. So that, that's the next kind of assisted migration. 
And then uh, the, the next category might be uh, where you move species, you know, well past the range. And, and, it, and it's a gradient, right? Like if we're thinking about uh, sequoia or something like that, that really isn't even close to Washington, um, but that might be a species that, that, I mean, certainly people are interested in that species. And there's a long history in Washington of planting sequoia in, in various places. Um, but, but it's not really just shifting the range a little bit. That's a big jump from its, its northernmost location. And then, of course, you can have things come from entirely different continents. You know, in the, in the urban forestry world, we use species from Europe even that wouldn't, that wouldn't naturally uh, migrate. So, yeah, so there's, a whole, there's a whole range of things under the term assisted migration. And so it's, it is very important that you clarify what you're talking about you know, at, at the beginning of a discussion. So, Jeff, can you give us kind of a, a broad overview of this project that you've undertaken? Who are you working with on this? Uh, what's the objective of your research? And introduce us to what you're doing. Sure. So, as as we think about the future, and and we think about, you know, if we're going to change seed sources, uh, which seed sources should we choose? You know, how far away do we want to go? And and when we start doing this, we start thinking more in climate space than geographic space. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, geographic space would be I'm looking at a map. I'm going to, say, go to northwest Oregon or southwest Oregon or, or wherever. When I think in climate space, instead of looking, looking at that map, I I plot seed sources on a graph and maybe the x-axis, the bottom of the graph is, is differing temperatures, and the y-axis, the left side of the graph, maybe is some measure of uh, precipitation or a, or a heat moisture index, some measure of kind of the drought stress. And, and then so you can plot all your seed sources in there and see, because sometimes two sites can be fairly far apart and be sort of similar, really, in, in their climates. Or the, the reverse can happen. And the most common place this would happen would be in, in very steep topography. You could have two sites that aren't very far apart uh, geographically, not many miles apart, but are in very different temperature environments. So, so as we think about this seed source uh, selection, we want to we think more about the climate that things come from more than the distance that they come from. And I, I know uh, you're aware there's some, some nice uh, tools out there that, that you can work with online. Uh, one is the Seedlot Selection Tool. And this is a, a geographic information system kind of based uh, tool. And, and what it does is, is you can pick a planting site and it will show you the areas where, that are similar in climate to that planting site. So then you'd know where you might want to get seed right now. But the, the value of it is you can also uh, click on some point in the future and it'll show you how, based on what the models suggest your planting site is going to be in the future, where you'd go today to find a similar environment. So this is, this is a, a not based so much on tree data, um, but based on matching environments. And, and I think that's a, regarded as a fairly 
uh, low risk way to try to adapt. You know, if you, if you match environment, it, it kind of makes sense that the trees should be able to, um, to grow reasonably well uh, in, as the environment changes if you, if you grab trees that had evolved in a similar environment. But I th also think it's important to recognize that uh, that that's not a long-term record of tree growth showing us that trees actually perform that way. Now, th now there is tree research behind that because you have to decide how much uh, variation you're going to allow. In other words, how far off you can be from your site environment and still be considered adapted. And and there is a lot of uh, research for that question that helps uh, guide the, the what, what's called transfer limits. In other words, how how different can the seed source be from the planting site and still be everything still be okay? So so it is informed by that kind of research, but but a lot of that research is is on fairly young trees, not on long term tests and those sorts of things. So I think right behind those modeling approaches, we want to actually plant trees and 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 build data sets um, that help increase our confidence that we're making the right decisions. And and this has been done. Um, there's some trials going all the way back to 1913 that people started doing this. But because we in our region recognized very early on that that local seed is what we wanted to use, we we didn't continue to invest in as much in that as we would if we knew climate change was coming. And there's there's been some very influential studies of, of that sort. Uh, there's one up in British Columbia. It was done in Lodgepole Pine where they put in this kind of amazing uh, set of, of trials in with, with a lot of different seed sources from, from really warm environments to really cold environments, and then planted them in that same range of of environments and, and there's been lots of really great research that came out of that helping us helping us to understand how far we should be thinking about moving lodgepole pine but we don't have uh those kind of big studies for most of our species in in the northwest uh i, I do want to point out that there's a, a study that that you may be aware of um Brad St. Clair and Connie Harrington from the Forest Service established one of these back in 2009 that has a similar range of Douglas fir seed sources as, as well as um, a, a lot of different planting sites from, you know, the coast to the Cascade at three latitudes, one up in Washington, one and two down in Oregon. So that's, that's a very valuable study and giving us some, some insight into that. But, but because these are so expensive to do, like in that study, there's nine sites, which which is good, and and we're you know those of us in the uh, genetics community have been big supporters of this and are are really grateful. But because these are such big decisions that affect so much of the landscape, I th I think what would be nice is to have uh, a lot more of those in in more environments and and more places across the landscape, just to kind of confirm the results um, that we're seeing out of those other studies. So so that's what this study is intended to do, is trying to get more, like if you picture a, um, a, a graph, like the, the, the one I mentioned where you're thinking in climate space, where maybe temperature is on the bottom axis and, and some measure of uh, drought stress or precipitations on the, on the left axis. 
picture a lot of you know dots like a a scatter plot there we we want to have sites in a lot of those places and the only way i think to do that is to um keep things relatively small and inexpensive to install so that you can find people to do that because one of our problems in in DNR is we want to know how some of these seed sources that we might be able to choose from do in warmer drier conditions but we don't own anything south of the Columbia River so we don't have access to the kind of sites that we want to be able to test on which makes it very important to have a lot of cooperators and and those cooperators can be anything from large public agencies to private companies to even family forest owners um, and, and and we're designing this this trial so that any of those groups can can install and and keep up with these and we're keeping the measurements simple for the kind of the same reason one of the problems that you get into with long-term research is can you keep up the funding for continued measurements as interest change and that sort of thing so so what we've done is created a, a fairly simple design we've accumulated the seed sources and that's that's one of the hard things to do in these things is find all the seed sources and get them together so we've done that piece and then our nursery grows so far we've been doing six sites a year growing that number and then we we find cooperators who are uh, willing to put these sites on their property. And so, so far that's been, some are on university property, some are on private timber company property, some are on ours, um, and some are on sort of smaller uh, landowner um, properties. So that's uh, that's kind of the concept. And then this will be long-term. And so uh, people keep track of these over time. And then, and then people will not only be able to uh, see the data for how these seed sources perform in a lot of these different environments, but they'll they'll also be able to just go and see the trees for themselves, you know, sort of a demonstration. Yeah, that that's really exciting, Jeff. I, I think one of the, like, sort of the brilliance of the study is just how uh, replicable, if I'm using that word <laughs> correctly, uh, it is. I, I like the idea of being cheap and effective and being, and having like a, a template that other people could adopt. And I love and I'm sure many of our listeners will love that this is something that forest owners could potentially participate in. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like how many sites are you looking for overall? And is it is there areas, geographic areas that you're lacking um, that you're targeting in particular? Or is it kind of just, you know, wherever you are, we would love to have more data kind of thing? Yeah, I, I think for the most part, it's wherever you are. We'd like to have more data. I mean, we do think about where we put these things. So the ver the first year, we've, we have two years of planting so far. And the first year was kind of our, you know, introduction into this. And so we put the, all those in Washington because they were close by and we could kind of, you know, get the kinks out. And, and we, we were putting other kinds of tests in every year as well. So we co-located some of those and then we wanted to then stretch the uh the climates and so last year this test all went in oregon and california cooperators down there so that we can get these trees into those warmer drier environments you know very early on in the process but um it we're just looking really to get a lot of sites in a lot of places and so 
you know, there might come a time when we have, say, so many in coastal Washington that we don't want to put more there. We want to put more inland or high elevation or something. But at this point, um, we're we're early enough in the process that that almost anywhere would be useful. And, and one thing I didn't say is is uh, for this first part, we're started with coastal Douglas first, so west of the Cascades, uh, even though. You know, the, if you pay attention to varieties, coastal Douglas fir does go over to the east slopes a bit. But we're, but all of our sources and all of our testing sites are, are west, and so so that would be uh, one uh, thing to think about for for the Douglas fir. But next in line, and we're just uh, beginning into this. Our next species to extend this to will be Ponderosa pine, and which means that all the landowners on the east side. Uh, as well as their counterparts in in Oregon and, and California is where we'll be looking for those. So even though right now we're only looking for west western Washington sites, we'll shortly be looking for sites statewide, just just different species. Jeff, for landowners who might want to participate in this, what sort of site characteristics, other than just basic geographic location, are you looking for? What we'd be looking for are are sites where the tree that have conditions where the trees they're, they're set up for young trees to do well and and so for Westside Douglas fir, as you guys know, uh, it doesn't do well in shady conditions and it has a hard time if a site's too brushy and and the whoever plants the trees doesn't take care of that that brush and the trees get shaded out. So we would want to avoid, say, underplanting a, a thin stand where we don't expect Douglas fir to do well. We would want to avoid uh, a site where there's going to be lots of brush competition and it seems unlikely that the um, landowner is going to be able to do anything to, to help the trees survive. But other than that, almost any kind of site, I mean, we, we have to plant on the dry you know glacial sites in the in the Puget Sound lowlands we have to plant high elevation sites uh in the cascades so so as long as it's a a landowner that that has the capacity to take care of the the planting and, and this is only about an acre it's not a not a huge uh each site is only about an acre uh r- really any, anywhere would be useful and and the nice thing is that I think the landowners who are most likely to be engaged in this are also those that that do have that ability that spend a lot of time on their land and and really are uh are tending it carefully and taking care of those trees that they plant. So I think the I think that there's there's lots of of those active small landowners who we would we'd be happy to uh work with on this. Jeff, can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like in terms of what care will be needed by the landowner, especially in those first few years. Sure. Uh, I guess just like any time we're planting trees, you uh, you need to first look at, at what the conditions are on the planting site. So, you know, if you have an old pasture, that's a really challenging place to establish trees, you know, because not only is grass one of the worst competitors sucking all the moisture out of the soil and killing the little seedlings with drought, but also you tend to have voles, you know, that girdle the little seedlings. So if you're in a situation like that, uh, we would want a landowner to be able to really control that grass and keep it down in some way and 
And, uh, you know, there's a range of different strategies for doing that. If we're in more of a forested condition, you know, especially if there's not heavy grass competition, um, you know, we don't have to have all vegetation eliminated. What we're looking for is survival and and reasonable uh, growth that things aren't going to be overtopped and suppressed. So as it would just be, I think in a lot of cases, if the landowner checked on it once a year and made sure that things are getting cut back, you know, around the trees and aren't, aren't, you know, overtopping it, as you, as you uh, know, some of our species, they sprout really vigorously and, and just can go right up over top and, and shade Douglas fir out. So uh, we would just want want someone who has the ability to to watch that, but it doesn't have to be a super intensive uh, vegetation management regime. Just just enough to know that the trees are going to su- survive and be able to grow and establish and 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 get big at some point. So Jeff, um, you know, at these sites, how, how many seed sources are you looking at uh, for a particular experiment? Yeah, we have twenty three seed sources. Uh, 18 of those are seed sources collected from the woods, and six are from Washington, six from Oregon, and six from California. In each of those states, we have as wide a range of, remember I was talking about that climate space, as wide a range in that climate space as we could find, and and mostly focusing on winter cold temperatures, because in conifers, that's one of the biggest things that trees are adapted to. So, so we, and, and we really, because this is a, an experiment about moving things into different kinds of environments, we really wanted to stretch those as much as we could in, in each state. So, so we have those 18, and then we have five seed lots from our, from DNR orchards representing different geographic areas. And that kind of represents, you know, status quo of what we would normally plant on these sites in the absence of uh, climate change. So, so, so those 23 are kind of the, the core seed sources that go everywhere. But we are very open to landowners adding some additional sources if they have some that they're interested in. And, and landowners have done that. On the sites down in Oregon, the landowner and there added some of their kind of standard uh, seed, seed sources that they plant a lot. And that's no problem at all. From our standpoint, we just want to make sure that we get the base set in, and then um, and then if people want to want to add, that's great. Uh, we do have some that some of these seed sources, some of these trials. We sent some seed up to British Columbia. Heard about this, and they're going to put in a couple. We also sent some to uh, Austria. So one of their geneticists was interested in that. Uh, listeners may not be aware, but Douglas fir is actually it's it's native to the the Western U.S. And, and Western Canada, but it's also grown now in, in Europe. And so they wanted to test things. So we have most of it in those trials, but there's some disease concerns uh, with sending seed from some of the California sources. So the, they weren't, uh, we, we weren't allowed to send them those, those California sources, but we have the rest of them uh, in those trials. But, but around here, all, all 23 of the, the standard plus whatever a landowner wants to add. Jeff, can you walk us through what data you'll be collecting, how long, how often you'll be collecting that data, what kind of access landowners would need to provide, and also, what's the timetable? How long will these trials last? What's the time commitment for a participant? Yeah, uh, 
our, our current plan is to keep the measurements quite simple. And, and that's so that we're, if we want to have a lot of sites, we have to have a, we can't have a big measurement burden. And so our current plan is in the early years, uh, so say until they get about 10 feet tall, just measuring height. Nothing other than that. And, and the reason for that is you can go down to hardware store, buy a 10-foot piece of PVC, mark it off, and, and get height measurements fairly quickly and easily. As the trees get larger, we'll probably switch to diameter uh, because height measurements get difficult and require some more specialized tools uh, as, you, as the trees get taller. And so at that point, we, you know, just diameter, you can either use a diameter tape or, you know, maybe small landers don't happen to have a diameter tape. You can actually use, uh, say, uh, you know, like the cloth tapes that people who sew use. They just wrap that around the tree, and then you're measuring circumference, and we can calculate the diameter off of that. So we want to make this very easy. And in a lot of research, you know, we'd measure every maybe five years or something like that. But when we've been talking about this, we may ask for measurements each year. And part of the reason for that is not necessarily that we have to have the data every year to, to do what we need to do with this. But I think there are a couple of values of, of that, provided that we make this really easy and quick. You know, If, if you go back every year, number one, it, it's a reminder that is out there and go out to look and are there any any problems, you know, are, are things getting over top or any, it just, it just keeps awareness and engagement with our cooperators. The other value is we don't always know uh, what problems might pop up, you know, susceptibility to frost or some disease showing up in certain seed sources or, or snow breakage or, you know, whatever that might be. And so if we make a practice of getting out there to get those simple measurements once a year, it just, it just makes sure that we're watching and that we, we catch up on uh, any, any things that are, that are starting to appear, that we, we, we're aware of those and we start looking closer. And, and the idea isn't, so I think you mentioned access, Kevin. So unlike big research experiments, our, our expectation for anybody who wants to be part of this would be that they would be willing to do those measurements, you know, understanding that they're going to be simple. But, and, and, and with these simple measurements, you can obviously think of lots of things that you're not capturing. But, but the idea is if, we, if we're out there looking and see these simple, do these simple measurements and we start to notice something, we can always go back and do more complicated measurements with professional crews that have the tools and all that sort of thing to verify if we think we see any trends. Um, and, and so, so I, that's, that's how I think about it is, is regular, simple observations, and then, you know, supplemented by uh, more complex, detailed things where we, where we think we might see some patterns that are important. Jeff, will it matter what time of year people take the measurements? Uh, do you have a preference or is it as long as it's consistent? And also, uh, how many years do you expect to be gathering data from these yeah, I, so the, sites? The first question is, we normally measure during the dormant season. And so, in other words, after and, and, and in, for height growth, you know, really once you're past July and, and 
for the most part, height growth. Sometimes you have a little bit of second flushing. So say late summer through, you know, maybe April before the, you start getting bud flush the next year is when we do that. And that's just so you're capturing the full year's growth. You're not getting uh, growth, you know, partway through a growing season. Uh, and then that gives, you know, nine or 10 months window to be able to do those measurements. Uh, with diameter, we might wait slightly later to September, but it's not going to be a big deal either way. And then how long we want to continue these, I mean, we'll want to measure these for decades. And and the reason for that is when you have these long-term experiments, the existing ones that we can look at that are, you know, 100 years old or or 80 years old or things like that, sometimes what you see is that what looks good in the early years sometimes doesn't hold up in the long run. And so that that's the reason that we want to follow these for decades. Normally, if things are doing okay up through age 10 or 15, they're going to continue to do okay, but there are definitely exceptions. And that's what we want to be watching for are those exceptions, especially knowing what we're doing with climate change. You know, we're having to make some guesses about the future and try some things that don't have a long track record in our area. So, so we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll follow these for decades. And that's one of the things that as the organizer of the, of the project that we have to uh, be thinking about is, you know, how do we make sure that this data has a stable storage place and how do we manage the transition of careers as people, you know, retire, take other jobs and, and new people come in. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, collecting long-term data, but as you said, ensuring that it it, uh, it holds up as people retire and there's turnover. There's been a lot of data lost I've seen in that process. So I'm glad you're thinking about it ahead of time. Um, so I wanted to ask you. You mentioned earlier that these sites would hopefully um, be be available for demonstration, and I, I assume that doesn't mean all of them. Then that's like a prerequisite necessarily for participating, but um, I'm kind of curious what else, um, you know, where do you see the applications of this research? Is there going to be, would this eventually be translated into some sort of guide or manual for folks? Would it be something that Webster itself could use when they're um, taking orders for seedlings? Um, how do you see the research being rolled out? Okay. Yeah. So so the, the first question was about uh, the demonstration part and access. And so we definitely do not uh, have any, you know, requirements that you need to let people come onto your property to see this. Uh, by having so many sites, one advantage of that is that there are sites in a lot of different places close to, like if you think about foresters who might work in an area, hopefully have one of these sites close to them so they can actually see this. So you're not basing your decision just based on results in some kind of a publication in a table or a graph, or you can actually look at the trees and see those patterns and, and make sure that you're comfortable with doing this. But, but uh, if a landowner wanted to have this, but wasn't like, say it's a private landowner that has a, you know, gated property, there's no expectation that people can have permission to come onto your land. But I think landowners will tend to show people these. I think certainly within DNR, we would, have tours uh, 
in, if we were in an area, we might look at something like this. I know the the small the family forest landowner community. Um, they like to share with each other and and show people what they're doing. They're pretty proud of the the great work and, and all the care that they they put into their property. So it wouldn't surprise me to see some of them showing off their trial on one of the the field days that that you guys help sponsor. Um, yeah, but there's but there's no requirement. So if anybody the the the, the data can be um, very valuable whether other people see that any particular site or not. So that's one thing. The other is how we use this. So we will be analyzing, and it, and it won't be me. Uh, it will be somebody, you know, potentially the, the, uh, one of the people that work for DNR who's been working with that other study I mentioned um, with Brad St. Clair and Connie Harrington. The the it's Peter Gould is is the my former uh, colleague's name. Well, he's still my colleague, I guess, but he used to work for DNR, and and he was a co organizer of this. He's since taken a job with a, a private company. He, I think he's still interested and will probably still be helpful, but it'd be someone like him or maybe someone with the Pacific Northwest Research Station of the Forest Service. Because uh, again, we're thinking about long-term uh, storage of the data and you know analysis that has to happen over decades. And so we want to make sure we're tied in with uh, you know, organizations more than just me and my program. And this won't be a standalone result because like I mentioned, there's the seed source movement trial that, that Connie and Brad have started. There's other older studies. There's previously published studies with younger material. And I think this is just one more thing that adds uh, to that body of knowledge. But it's it's will have a wider range of seed sources and sites than many of those, and will go to older ages than uh, than many of those. So it, it it'll just I think increase our confidence that we're making the right decisions. But I think the way people would use it is not so much just by reading a publication and, and using that alone, but but by using tools like the seed lot selection tool and and uh, and then looking. Hopefully, the, like the transfer limits, the the how, what we consider safe within that tool can be adjusted over time with this kind of information. And then, of course, just the demonstration value is an important way that these are used. As people are getting ready to make a decision, you know, going out in the woods and, and looking at real trees and real soil, and and saying, you know, do, do I feel comfortable with this? Especially once they're several decades into uh, into growth, I think that'll that'll help a lot. Jeff, for people who want to part, possibly participate in this, uh, first question for you is how long do you expect to be taking on new sites? So this is the August 2023 episode of the podcast. For people who might be listening to this a couple years from now, will there still be opportunities at that point to contact you and get connected to this? There will. I, I'm hoping that for each species we can get something like 50 sites we, we have enough seed to do that pretty easily uh we've we just we're, we've just planted our second year sites earlier so we're going to continue to sow these i would say at least 10 years for coastal douglas fir and then we're starting in i, I hope if we can get all the seed lots assembled this fall we'll sow our first ponderosa sites next year so that will continue and then at some point we hope to add additional species. So I, I think this will be, depending on where you are, I think this will be going on for 
uh, many years. And that brings up another very important question is how do people contact you if they're interested in hosting a site? So there's one way is to uh, just email me and you can email me. I don't know if you can put this in the notes or for the podcast, but jeff.dbell at dnr.wa.gov would be one way. And another way, if you just get a hold of Webster Nursery, we all work together. just ask to be connected to me and they can do that pretty easily that way as well. Great. And then uh, to follow on that, for people not necessarily interested in hosting a site, but interested in your research, how can people follow along with your preliminary results and what's coming out of these test sites? As, as, as we get uh, a few years of data in and it's worth kind of summarizing I think we will have some sort of a web, web-based summary. We haven't gotten to that part of it yet. Uh, I know that's when, when, when Peter was with DNR, uh, he had some really great examples and ideas of how you can make this, these results visible to people, you know, where you can see a map and click on different sites and it shows you summaries. And so I hope that we can get to something like that. Um, and again, that's more, I, I've been more the side of, uh, the the basic design and assembling the seed sources and and getting the system in place, and then and then Peter was the the side of the project that uh, does the analysis and the the making the results available. And so we, we'll we'll definitely be working on that in the next few years to get that all figured out. Well, I can say for sure that Kevin and I. Uh, we'll be really excited to share that out in our various networks when the time comes. Um, I'm sure people will be really eager to stay up to date on this research. It's really important. Um, and one thing we can also do is uh, I'll be sure to include your email in the description of this podcast so people can just go there. And uh, if they want to participate, reach out to you. And I really encourage those that are interested to do that uh, and, and help support some really some really interesting and really important research Um so that's all the time we have today, Jeff. This has been incredibly informative, um, and I've had a really good time talking to you. Do you have any last uh, final thoughts, messages to, to listeners? Uh, I guess the, the, the final thought I have is I, I appreciate you uh, providing some visibility for this project, and I really welcome any of the small forest landowners to join us. Because one of the things about uh, any project like this is the real reason behind it is to make a difference on the ground. And so having this out in the small landowner community where uh, when they visit each other's properties, they see this and they become familiar with it is just really adds value to the project. So so uh, hope to see some of your listeners uh, jump in and, and thanks again for providing that visibility. And thank you, Jeff. It was wonderful to have you with us on the podcast today. And we want to thank all of our listeners for joining us. As always, you can catch other episodes of the Forest Overstory podcast on our YouTube channel or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And we will catch you next time on The Forest Overstory. Mm-hmm.